0: Hello and welcome to episode number 155 of the Agro Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Tuesday, November 11th, 2014. On this episode of the podcast, you're going to hear a little history lesson about the National Farmers Union as we continue to delve into case studies of farmer solidarity, cooperation, and labor organization. No donations to report since the last episode of the podcast, but if you would like to donate, you can click on that PayPal Donate button on the right-hand side of the agronovation.com website. Your donations are appreciated and much needed. This interview is part one in a two-part interview, so next week expect more uh, from Farmers Union historian Tom Geisel. And following that, we will talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in the realm of community-supported agriculture. So please enjoy my interview with Tom Geisel. Okay, so on this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast, we are do- joined by Tom Geisel. And Tom is the honorary historian for the National Farmers Union, and he is also a farmer in Kansas. Tom, welcome to the Agro Innovations podcast.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation, and I'm very excited about the opportunity to visit with you.
0: Tom, tell us about the story of farmers' unions and where it begins.
1: Well, farmers' union was established in in 1902 in Point, Texas, and it. It it was based, a lot of it was based on some very uh, fundamental cooperative principles. Um, It actually arose from the ashes of the old Farmers Alliance organization, which was established in the 1880s into the 1890s. And farmers were really working for, economic. if they were going to make something happen, they were going to have to do it themselves. And there's always been, with farm organizations, and continues to this day to be this this um, um, kind of decision, whether you do it, you know, cooperatively through cooperatives or through legislation, and then so, but Farmers Union started uh, in the cooperative sense. Actually, our the legal name of the organization is the Farmers Educational and Cooperative Union of America. And it, like I say, it started in, in Point Texas and spread across the South. Had a lot to do with the cotton at that time, and the price of cotton, and they built cooperative warehouses and stockpiled cotton to try to improve the economic uh, situation for those farmers in the south. But then it eventually spread to the east and then northward into the Plains states. It's a long story.
0: So can you tell us, um, did you mention what year that this was in Texas that this began?
1: Yes, 1902. And the organizer was a gentleman by the name of Newt Gresham, who was an old Farmers' Alliance organizer. The Alliance, you know, the Farmers' Alliance kind of imploded because it got so deeply involved in partisan politics. And that's always the downfall of a, a farm organization is when they when they just get too close and too cozy with partisan politics. And um, they the, the people that organized the Alliance and, you know, were working for its goals didn't want to let it dry, so die. So they resurrected it in 1902, with, with these 10 uh, people in Texas. And they really, uh, in studying this over the years, they really had a, a great understanding about what it took for an organization to, to exist and to be successful. And that's why Farmers Union is one of only three general farm organizations in the United States as of today.
0: So can you tell us what these elements that these gentlemen were aware of through their experience and how they incorporated that in the creation of Farmers Union?
1: Well, they knew that they they had three principles, education, organization, and cooperation. And they knew that before you could organize, you had to educate. And there was this tremendous, um, tremendous emphasis on education, and ultimately, they needed they needed to cooperate, and that's where the cooperatives come in into play. But, but they they really had a good sense um, that the information had to go out to um, to farmers to let them know what was going on. And and it's it's interesting as a side note that a lot of the farm organizations that started up at the turn of the century, the last century, that is, uh, were started by editors of. Newspapers. Newt Gresham edited a small paper in in um, East Texas. Uh, There was another group, the American Society of Equity. Um, There was a gentleman from Illinois started. So, so a lot of times these organizations were built around, in in one sense, around a a newspaper and around information. And they, you know, they'd sell it as like, okay, if you can join Farmers Union, it's going to cost you like twenty-five cents a year. Plus, you know, for another fifty cents, you can get this monthly newspaper. And people craved information, just like today. They they craved information. And, um, and Farmers Union was really good about uh, getting it out there in, in front of the people and educating. Not People knew what their problems were, but working on the solutions that would help them reach, you know, some tor- sort of economic parity with the rest of the economy.
0: So were these people... Um were they tied in I mean I know there was a lot happening in the country at this time around other labor organizing and industrial workers um and, and in Europe as well. Were they tied into this movement as well and if so in what way?
1: Oh yes. Um and that would that would come and go a little bit, but yeah, they were definitely tied to the labor. They you know, they understood that the problems of the the working man were the same problems of the, those of the farmers, and you know the common enemy was the trust and the combines, and uh, so they all went after him, you know. And the railroads, of course, in in agriculture, the railroads were were always a an you know a, an issue for for agriculture to get their products haul haul to market or whatever, and they always felt like they were being you know suppressed or you know being pressed down awful heavily by the by the railroads, because that was the only form of transportation at that time.
0: So as these groups organized themselves, starting in Texas and moving around the country, um, what happened? I mean, what were their successes? What were their failures? Uh, What were some of the controversies that they generate? Tell us a little bit about some of the notable events in this uh, story.
1: You know, to be successful as a farm organization, it's really important to start at the right time. And whether... You know, you want to start when farm prices are low because then as prices go up, whether you had anything to do with it or not, you could always take claim. And that's what happened with cotton. And I I think Farmers Union did have an influence with their warehouses, cooperative warehouses. But the price of cotton went from like $0.09 cents to $0.12. Cents. And then all at once everybody said, well, this really works. And there was a real sense of, of um, you know, okay, we need to really get behind this and get the ball rolling. And... um it's, like I say, it started with cotton in, in the South, and then it spread to the East, to, to the Southeast states, and then up, actually in 1911, North Carolina was the largest membership state in our organization. And it wasn't too long after that, but in the Midwest, and the upper Midwest, that with the grains, they started to understand how important it was to operate cooperatively with grain markets and, and marketing. And... Um, the political influence shifted to the to the Northwest and, and really died out in the South. And you find this all the time with, with farmers and farm organizations. You know, their problems are the same. They've been the same. They were the same 150 years ago. They're the same today. What really changes what I've discovered is people's resolve to do something about their situation. And, you know, there's some really great quotes early on. From like the Farmers Alliance um, back in the 1880s, and I'll, I'll just tell you one of them here that I, that really stuck out at I me. Mean, uh, o- Owen Dornblazer who was an organizer for Farmers Union uh, 100 years ago, talked about how important it was to um, for people to take control of their own destiny because I think they really got, or I think they were really disgusted with politicians, M- not unlike today, to where you know there's promises and then. You know, if you're going, to, what amounts to it is if you're going to make something happen, you have to do it yourself. But his quote was, and this was in um, in uh, in 1887. He said, "Oh no, you were born later on, so so darn lazy. You would sit down at the pump and wait for the windmill to draw the water. Have no strength to grab the handle and pump. Well, in 1887, you had to pump or be pumped. <laughs> and you know, I, so it's it's still true today that." That, you know, if you don't try to control your own destiny that, um, that you <clears throat> and try to rely on someone else to solve your problems, it just doesn't work. And these people had success at, at, by, by doing this.
0: How, what was the nature of the spread of the farmers' union? Did it spread through local chapters, or were people fo- forming smaller unions in other places? Uh, how, how did that play out?
1: Okay, what, what they had, and it and still exists today, is what they call locals. And locals were, the it was built around the schoolhouse principle because the schoolhouse was the social center of all these rural communities. And you have to understand there were no roads, there were no automobiles, at, or m- many automobiles at that time. So people congregated at the schoolhouse. So they they took all this... To a local level and a local action, mainly because they couldn't travel. Eventually, I mean that that changed. And there's some interesting stories in that regard too. But, but um, in fact, I have a copy of the minutes from a farmers' union local starting in 1913, clear up through 19 in the 1950s. And I go back and read these meeting notes. They're they're met every two weeks generally, and they would talk about doing things cooperatively, like buying kaffir seed corn or brooms and collectively buying to to get a better deal or to even get even to have the ability to to purchase some of these things and then this kind of evolved into where I said well why are we buying this from somebody we ought to we ought to have our own stores so they would build not only the stores but even elevators or grain terminals to to uh, to sell and market their grain I mean, it was a two way it was, it was to buy what they needed and to also sell what they needed to sell and if they pooled their uh, pooled their commodities they they generally get a lot better price so it gave them power it you know the the this entire organization with these small locals it, it was all done on a local level obviously early but but it this it gave them a sense of empowerment and that they could make a difference because they they realized they really couldn't rely on on uh, the political system even though they they could influence it, it, it one of the other quotes early on, and I don't have it right in front of me, was that every year, every other year, we vote out half our problems, but we still have half of them left. And so, you know, and and they always there was always two factions to this too that that people wanted to they, the legislative process often um, they considered a shortcut to the you know, to get where they wanted. But they they knew that the cooperatives were the long-term success. That's what would really ultimately make the difference.
0: They were forming cooperatives to uh, share infrastructure collectively and also to make purchases collectively, Um, Mm -hmm. and I guess to some degree to uh, get their product to market collectively. Are there any other... um, Examples uh, were they doing sh- were they sharing labor in any way or, or anything like that actually on the production end of things?
1: Well, I think that was a natural in, in rural communities and you know you, you had if you were going to survive, you had to work with someone. In fact that Owen Franklin Dornblazer had the quote he says, "You can't help yourself if you don't help the other guy." And I think that's a wonderful quote and I think it's still quote still a true quote today. What's changed today is that that with technology and and all the advanced supposed advancements we make, we like to tend to think that we are so independent but actually we in in communities we are more interdependent and we should be more interdependent i mean to where we know our neighbor, to where we do these things and and yeah these organizations that you know were also there was also a real strong social aspect to it as well and people understood the importance of community and you know cooperatives for that matter helped create communities i mean they created not only the community that they lived in but but communities within communities and and there that's that's just a fascinating read when you go back and read these read these old newspapers and old accounts of these things and and what was important to people and uh, and how that helped build things. And and you know, the the cooperatives weren't just the supply cooperatives or the selling cooperatives. You know, in the nineteen twenties, well in the actually nineteen thirties, we had the rural electric administration federal government program which helped finance cooperatives to to get electricity across rural areas where they where they would never where it never would have happened as fast and at a reasonable price. There were cooperative banks. There, well, In fact, there still are today. I mean, your credit unions are co-ops. Um, co-ops really exist everywhere today, um, and people just a lot of times don't really recognize them as
0: cooperatives. So about this time, um, the Cooperative Extension Service was also created. Uh, was there a big role for them in this process or not so much?
1: That's... Yeah, and that's an interesting story in its own. And yeah, the yeah that they they played a, a significant educational role, and it actually um, there was a pretty strong connection between the cooperative extension and uh, the Farm Bureau, another farm organization, and that that kind of got muddled up, muddied up a little bit. But by the 1930s, it, it kind of got separated out. But um, yeah, people. Uh, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier about the organization being really into the educational aspect. And there were, you know, everybody had an agenda they they wanted to educate people about. And that was another agenda. And there was nothing wrong with it. It was just um, another aspect of the educational uh, portion of what was going on in in rural America.
0: Well, as uh, time passed. The country certainly changed a lot, and you've alluded to this a little bit. I mean, there was a technological revolution that swept over the country in the form of the telephone and the automobile and uh, the motion picture and many other things uh, that, that didn't really exist to the extent that they began to uh, as the country changed uh, You know, when the Farmers' Union was formed. How did uh, the changes that were happening around the country affect the Farmers Union, and how did the Farmers Union react to that?
1: It's really, that's interesting you bring that up, because in the 1920s, I, I read a piece where they talked about how <clears throat> the attendance at local Farmers Union meetings was really dropping off, and they said, well, this this uh, editor of the paper said, well, I see two reasons. He said the first, and it was a combination of good roads and the automobile, and secondly, the radio, Okay, the good, road, the good roads and automobile. They, they said, well, people instead of visiting with a neighbor were willing to drive into town or go to a neighboring town or do something, so they wouldn't get together. You know, wouldn't get together, or people were completely content to sit at home and listen to the radio. It was a new invention. It was entertainment, and uh, you know, and so I really kind of put the kibosh to a lot of these, uh, a lot of these um, local and local type meetings and. And I can tell you, fast forward to today, with with the internet and other things, you know, you literally don't have to to leave your home. So, what this really says, I think, is 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 a really a probably more of a social sociological issue is of how our communities, how we interact or fail to interact, due to some of these things. So I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying that there's always something to be said about about talking. Getting together with people, having discussions, you know, and, it, and it's it's the actual interaction with you know, seeing facial expressions and, and whatnot. So, uh, and how that all translates into the communication. Farmers Union used to, um, in the early, I'd say, in, in the teens, put out a monthly um, list of topics for discussions for meetings, for so people could get together. It was extremely educational. Um, and 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 it still is, I think we still do a good job of just you know we just live in a little bit different world in in many senses
0: well, so as uh technology began to influence um, the nature of these organizations, how did the uh plight of the farmer change?
1: Well, you know of course, farms just continued to to get larger and and um, be less um dependent on on other other local um people you know local people local businesses all all these things and and uh yeah that it it did it did really start to influence and change it you know in in the about 19 in the 19 teens the small tractor came into play and it and it's interesting look at those ads and this kind of ties into what you're asking It said, yeah, if you buy one of these tractors, you'll get your farming done in a lot less time and have more time to spend with your family. Well, the fact of the matter is, what people did, they just made their farm larger so they could do more. I mean, greed played into it. And fast forward to today, we have new technologies in the last 15 or 20 years that, you know, you can farm three times what you farmed, you know, 20 years ago in the same amount of time. But to people, spend less time on the farm and more time in their community and more time with their family? No. Generally, they just increase their farm size. So it really changes the, the social structure and the dynamic of, of rural communities and and farm organizations. And that's why farm organizations struggle to exist. I mean, and, and they do struggle.
0: So what was, beyond technology, um, as the years rolled by, what was what were some of the notable? challenges that the Farmers Union faced and addressed um, uh, that, that stick out yeah. in your mind?
1: Well, of course, conservation in the 30s, and there's, that's an that's entire story in and of itself. And, uh, but I'd say also, in our organization, we had some really wonderful leadership, especially from 1940 to 1967 with a gentleman named James Patton, and he had his much larger vision, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, yes, he was deeply concerned about the price of wheat, price of corn, cattle, so on and so forth, or inputs. But he looked at, at food and what it was to a society and what it was to a world. And he had this wonderful vision. And it really, you know, coalesced the, the people of the organization. I think it, it, it gave us um, a lot of, of opportunity to tie in with, with people that were not of the farm. And you know it, it gave credibility and credence to what what family farmers do. And so every once in a while, you you have a leader come along in, in any organization that that is truly dynamic, and this James Patton was. I've, I met the gentleman back in 1983. He died shortly thereafter. I, I wish I would have had time to spend with him uh, because he was truly a visionary. And uh, we've had we've had several of them in our organization. We've had a lot of good leaders, don't get me wrong, but then there's these people that come along and, and just you know, just blow everything away. I mean they just they really have got it and they really understand what it's all about. And um you know, it um just just fascinating fascinating what what they do.
0: So so can you can you flesh out James Patton's vision a little a little bit more for the listeners?
1: Uh yeah, he he understood, you know, that that the issue of hunger had everything to do with poverty and not so much with the supply of food. And that's true today. You know, that argument we have today about you know we need the GMO technology, we need all these things so we can feed a hungry world. You know, it, it's maybe not so true. The, the underlying, like I said, his his deal was the underlying um, issue with with hunger is truly poverty. And the world can feed itself, and you know he he didn't subscribe to this thing that you know pound your chest type farmer that we're going to feed the world. He understood that yeah, you know, the world needs to feed itself, and this isn't that we shouldn't export, we shouldn't you know produce a surplus, you shouldn't do all these good things because they are good things, but then there has to be some balance in there, you know, <clears throat> to understand the structure of agriculture, to understand, uh, to understand people, to understand. Societies and what's right and what and what their needs are, and try to have that balance, you know, between the the economic issues and um, and the social issues, and uh, that was that, I think that was his primary thing. He 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 just was a great humanitarian, who who um just had a grasp on things, and and he was he was one of those magnetic type people that you know you just drawn to. You listen to him, you could listen to him for. For an hour or two hours, and you'd never get tired of it. And the next time he was going to be in your area, you'd want to also be there as well because you just wanted to hear what he had to say. So, and there was others too. There was a gentleman by the name of Morris Erickson who was on our national board in the 1930s, late 1930s, young guy. I mean, he in his upper 20s, and he talked about about all these things uh, that were going on with with the agriculture system. And I'll just read you one little short quote that I read the other day. I thought it was really kind of interesting. It said, "More recently, we have begun to understand that wishfully waiting for the day when the milk of human kindness will begin to flow into the trade arteries of an economic system based on greed for private profit profits means waiting for a day that'll never dawn." And you know, and that's I think what what was so fascinating about and has been so fascinating about our organization is that that it really reflected what people believed and what what true family farmers believed and what they didn't have time to stop and do because they're so busy farming but they wanted they wanted to, they wanted this opinion they wanted this this part of their spirit exposed to to about what you know to other people to, to explain yeah this what we do is is really important and it it doesn't make us better than anybody else but it's really important and we want it we want the respect that that uh, that comes with it, and we, we want the very fact that um, what we do is, is, is an important part of society and an important part of, of living, and let's, let's put that up there where people can, can understand it. Because once you understand that, then when you start dealing with the other issues within agriculture, it's easy to make decisions and poli- you know public policy decisions about what we should do with our food and fiber policy.
0: Well, I want to backtrack just briefly. You you uh, mentioned the conservation movement <clears throat> in the 1930s. Can you tell us about uh, the Farmers Union involved? With, how the Farmers Union was involved with that?
1: Yeah, and I'll and I'll back it up just a little bit. You know, in World War One, actually, the price of wheat was supported at nearly three dollars a bushel because they knew that an army couldn't march on an empty stomach. And what that what really happened was that's when a lot of the Great Plains, you know, and the, the grasslands were were broken out to to raise more crops, and uh, and that was probably a mixture of greed and need, both. But it was just unique that when they broke this out, especially in the southwest Kansas and the Panhandles, they had a couple wet years, and golly, it really worked good. Well, then then reality set in, where these um, where the um, environment, you know, went back to normal, and the rainfall patterns, and and we had all these surpluses but in the meantime they broke out all these fragile grasslands and tied in with what was going on with the you know all the economic issues of the 20s then the 1930s hit and we had you know had this depression and and dust bowl and and all these things that came together and farmers union was a strong proponent of the soil conservation service and of course it wasn't in place until the 1930s but um uh, we, you know, we we were promoting that that we needed a farm program. We needed fair prices for farmers, and we needed to, to you know, have a handle on, on production, and not just go out here and just wildly produce all we can and think that it's going to take care of itself. Um, you know, the the AAA program, that's the Agricultural Adjustment Act in the nineteen thirties, which was the first really uh, major farm program. Was declared unconstitutional. I think in 1936 or 7, just a year or two after it was put in place. But it was brought back into place, and what all farm programs are based on today, they tied the conservation um, uh, piece to it. So where, if you're going to if you're going to participate in farm programs, if you're going to be the beneficiary of farm program payments, then you also have to practice good conservation measures. And Farmers Union has always promoted great conservation and how important it was all the way from uh, when the WPA did did works in the 1930s to plant shelter belts to control wind erosion to to you name it. You know, we were a proponent of a limit on the, on the um, water uh, bureau reclamation. You know, they had a 160-acre limit to how farmers, the maximum acreage they could irrigate, and, of course, that went by the wayside, you know, 30, 40 years ago but we understood that it was really important to keep people tied to the land and have, you know, we always thought, and we still believe that the more farmers we have, the better, not the fewer. And that's, you know, we've always been at, um, you know, at odds with other organizations and other interests that said, well, in the name of efficiency, if we can do this with, with, you know, one farmer per township instead of 50, it's a better deal. Well, not always. I mean, we're, we're all for efficiencies, but um, that efficiency kind of gets there. Gets to be gets muddied up about what what efficiency really is in agriculture and with food production.
0: Now, as the farm union matured into the '60s and '70s, mm-hmm. um, what happened?
1: Well, well I think we're, we've done very well. Um, uh our organization gets smaller but you know there's fewer farmers so you you expect that um there's several things that happened philosophically with with uh food and farm policy in the United States and um you know we had some in the basically in the late 70s into the early 80s there was a more or less deregulation of of agriculture and agriculture programs And then, ultimately, in 1996, with the so-called Freedom to Farm program, there was just a total deregulation, and of course, now we're now we're seeing the effects of that, obviously. And uh, we we've always fought long and hard to you know to try to have. We we understand there. We think there's a lot of difference between uh, food and fiber policy and a farm program, and people kind of confuse that. And I think I don't think people look. On on, um, on the level of of uh, federal policy uh, at at food and fiber policy, I think they look at farm programs, and say, okay, here's so many dollars, here's what we want to do, but without thinking about why we're doing it. And and what's happened with with farm programs in the last 20 years, especially if not 30 or so, it's it's really forced more consolidations of farms. It's it's it's. Um, I don't think it was necessarily intentional, but um, but it happened, and you know we're. It always takes about ten or fifteen years to realize where you're at today. You know, it just, you know, there things have changed. A lot of things have changed, and things are changing again, and um, so yeah.
0: For farm laborers, uh, many people think of Cesar Chavez as the um, farm labor organizer and was this movement and these types of farm labor organizations uh adversarial with the farmers union were they allies with no. the farmers union tell us about that relationship no yeah.
1: no we were always friends with farm labor especially uh you know Cesar Chavez and 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 others i mean and that and that goes way back uh way back we've always fought for the for the small farmer we we've, we've we fought for fairness for for labor and and farmers as well and yeah that that relate, we're we're unique in that in that relationship because farm organizations um well we're just one of a kind more or less there because other ones other groups look at it differently and there's you know there's been a well I, I, a change in farm organization dynamic too but uh, but. I guess to try to stick on your, your farm labor issue there. Yeah, we've we've always we've always supported farm labor because we know it's how important it is.
0: That concludes part one of my interview with Farmers Union honorary historian Tom Giesel. I'd like to thank Tom again for joining me and for all the great work that he does. And if you liked this first part of the interview, you will probably like the second part uh, where Tom and I talk about uh, some of the themes of cooperatives and some of the history of that and some of the importance of it in this day and age. So please stay tuned for that. That will probably be next week. On the Agro Innovations blog, I posted a YouTube video with uh, Bill Mollison, the Bill Mollison interview from 2007 that he and I did. And uh, someone, I guess, really liked that video and took it and overlaid some imagery on it. And there are several examples of that uh, from that interview. Uh, I only shared one where Bill Mollison is talking about monoculture, but um, there are more. And so if you're interested in those, I'll, I'll likely be posting some of those in the coming days to the Agro Innovations blog, so check there. Or you can uh, follow me on Twitter, at Agro Innovations. Uh, and I'll be posting them there as well and likely on Facebook. Now, one quick disclaimer about Facebook I have a lot of people who friend me on Facebook, and I just am not taking any more Facebook friends. Sorry, don't take it personally. I don't use Facebook very much, I don't like it very much. So, if you want to follow the Agro Innovations podcast, uh, you can follow my Twitter feed or you can um, follow the Agro Innovations page on Facebook, or of course, you can always just subscribe to the Agro Innovations Podcast on iTunes or uh, the RSS feed on agroinnovations.com. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.